Good evening. The Kenosha shooter, Kyle Rittenhouse, is acquitted of all charges in a shooting that left two civil rights protesters dead and severely injured a third. The FBI and NYPD played a role in convicting innocent men in the murder of Malcolm X, and the president's Build Back Better bill heads to the Senate. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Friday, November 19th, 2021. Kyle Rittenhouse was acquitted of all charges today after pleading self-defense in the deadly Kenosha shootings that became a flashpoint in the debate over guns, vigilantism, and racial justice in the United States. That's the first count of the information, Joseph Rosenbaum. We, the jury, find the defendant, Kyle H. Rittenhouse, not guilty. As to the second count of the information, Richard McGinnis, we, the jury, find the defendant, Kyle H. Rittenhouse, not guilty. As to the third count of the information, unknown male, we, the jury, find the defendant, Kyle H. Rittenhouse, not guilty. As to the fourth count of the information, Anthony Huber, we, the jury, find the defendant, Kyle H. Rittenhouse, not guilty. As to the fifth count of the information, Gage Grosskreutz, we, the jury, find the defendant, Kyle H. Rittenhouse, Rittenhouse, not guilty. Rittenhouse, 18, began to choke up, fell forward towards the defense table, and then hugged one of his attorneys as he heard a court clerk recite the not guilty five times. A sheriff's deputy whisked him out a back door. Meanwhile, outside the courthouse, Rittenhouse, uh, Rittenhouse supporters erupted in cheers. The scene in Kenosha, Wisconsin today. The leader of Black Lives Matter in Brooklyn is Anthony Beckford. He says his decision came as no surprise, but it still left him angry. I am pissed because I know that if it was one of us in in our community, that would not have gone down like that. We would have gotten um, guilty on all charges. Plus, they would never have dismissed illegally carrying a firearm under age charge. And I'm not surprised because this is America. What is the reaction, do you think, going to be across the country? We're waiting for the next horrendous thing, and there'll be another movement. Even though I saw some videos that disappointed me, seeing some activists in Wisconsin sharing pizza with um, Kyle Rittenhouse's supporters, this is not a kumbaya moment. This is not a time to be docile. Nonviolent doesn't mean to be docile. Nonviolent doesn't mean to be passive. Their noise has to be made. Disruption of the system has to be had. We can no longer take these things because we feel that it's going to continue happening. No, we continue putting pressure on the system. We push now to remove that judge from his judgeship because he acted more like the defense attorney than the defense attorney did. We push them to see if there's any conflict of interest when it comes to these prosecutors because the prosecutors were very lax on making sure that they made these charges stick. And at the end of the day, we continue battling racism. We continue battling the bias. We continue battling the disparities. We continue battling white supremacy. We cannot sit back and wait for another hashtag. Because the next time, it could be any one of us. What we need to do is be more proactive and then take on more initiatives to shut it all down. Do you think that this is more the same? Or is there a feeling that we're heading towards vigilantism? It's more the same. Vigilantism against black people has existed since the dawn of time of the inception of America. How many people were lynched, shot, dragged out of their homes, predating the days of slavery from when the colonizer first set foot on this land and were going against the indigenous people of this land till now. We need to make sure that we wake up. We can no longer be complacent or complicit 
in this. And this also goes to those out there who want to sing a kumbaya story, you know, from our communities. No, the kumbaya stories is why these type of things continue to happen. We need to stop trying to act like Gandhi and be more like Malcolm, be more like Nat, and be more like Martin themselves. Martin Luther King was a nonviolent man, but he knew he needed to defend himself and his community if ever I said that occasion. It is time for us to defend our communities. Notice no, there were no active calls for any gun control when it came to Kyle Rittenhouse murdering people because they were protesting against a black man being shot by the police. But when the Black Panthers took the Capitol and showed that they had the Second Amendment rights as black people, the NRA and legislators came together to try to pass legislation to put gun control in predominantly black cities. We have to wake up to the fact of our history and stop allowing it to repeat ourselves. People are out here trying to appease us with street namings and falsehoods and optics. We need to be proactive and standing firm, standing united and standing strong as one people. Anthony Beckford is the leader of Black Lives Matter in Brooklyn. And journalist Paul Street is on the board of directors of the group Refuse Fascism. He's from Chicago and has been up to Kenosha on several occasions. He says Rittenhouse was looking for trouble when he arrived in Kenosha during the protests after the shooting by police of a black man, Jacob Blake, and the cops knew it. It's kind of one of those things where you sort of suspect it's coming, and yet it's shocking nonetheless. The sort of um, depth and degree of uh, bad faith that's involved in exonerating someone who clearly came up to Kenosha, up had an AR-15 with a safety off, fully loaded with 30 full metal jacket bullets and shot civil rights protesters. This is a kind of insanely dangerous precedent to set. And like a lot of people around the country right now, I'm a little bit shocked. At the same time, I sort of um, kind of anticipated that. Is this a rise of vigilantism going on in America, and what's that it mean? It seems to be a kind of strategy of the neo-fascism that's afoot right now to empower private actors. And we might note that next week we may have a verdict soon in Brunswick, Georgia, on, uh, you know, two or three white vigilantes who tracked someone down and, uh, in fact, tried to arrest them under an 1863 slave-era slave patrol citizen's arrest law and end up shooting a young black man. Ahmad Arbery did. So this does seem to be a kind of spin on the uh, white nationalist menace that's afoot in the country right now. Perhaps this will be a wake-up call for some of our friends and uh, comrades and uh, erstwhile fellow travelers on the liberal left. That We meant it when we said there's a uh, fascist, a neo-fascist danger in the country right now. Maybe we can name this menace a little more specifically going forward. So what's the response? Do we uh, all go out now and buy guns? That would be carnage. And uh, <laughs> on top of the moral dimensions of that, I like to tell people on the left that they're really, really way behind in the armament game. There are so many weapons afoot in this country, and they are disproportionately owned. On the black nationalist uh, movement and in some parts of the left, there are arguments for armaments. I understand some of those arguments, but the decisions in court that are that will take place when people start shooting at each other can usually fairly predictably be expected to go on behalf of right-wing shooters and against left-wing shooters. By God, there's an argument for self-defense. People have the right to self-defense. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and the early civil rights movement had the deacons of defense watching their back. So don't get me wrong. I'm not sure that, uh, that this is a moment to be advocating armed struggle. What should we be advocating? We should be advocating mass peaceful nonviolent resistance uh, with intelligent armed self-defense where it's necessary. Cornell West said that the Redneck Revolt's presence in Charlottesville saved a lot of people. So there is there is a role for that. 
a mass movement of flooding the streets, the public square, with demands for, among other things, a reasonable gun control methods and gun reform and police reform in this country. And we've got to find a way to outlaw this vigilantism. There are civil suits. There are civil suits afoot right now. In fact, a lot of people don't know that there's a civil case brought by Anthony Huber's family in Kenosha against the city of Kenosha, the police of Kenosha County and the Kenosha police against the city government for collaborating with and coordinating with fascist vigilantes. This issue of extra-legal neo-fascist militia forces often working in coordination with government police forces, and by the way, that's a classic historical fascist formula. This really has to be confronted and challenged, sued, resisted, and undone in every way imaginable. And that's Paul Street. He's a writer and journalist. He's part of the group Refuse Fascism. Rittenhouse, who's 18, he was 17 at the time of the shootings, should not have been in possession of a gun because he was underage, but it came out in the trial that several adults facilitated his purchase of the weapon. Defense attorney Mark Richards says Rittenhouse has a huge sense of relief for what the jury did to him today. He wished none of this ever happened, but Richards says uh, when he testified, he didn't start this. More than half a century after the assassination of Malcolm X, two of his convicted killers were exonerated yesterday after decades of doubt about who was responsible for the civil rights icon's death. Manhattan Judge Ellen Bybin dismissed the convictions of Muhammad Aziz and the late Khalil Islam after prosecutors and the men's lawyers said evidence that undermined the case against the men had been withheld and that the NYPD and FBI had withheld that information. Sahid Johnson is son of one of the two men, Khalil Islam, who died in 2009. Exactly. The, the fact that he's not here, it brings only a little satisfaction because um, I was in my mother's belly when he was taken. So for 25 years, there was no father-son connection except through, you know, visitation rooms. So the fact that it almost sounds casual to me that he's being exonerated. So the great pleasure is not there because he's not here with me. And that is Shahid Johnson, the son of Khalil Islam, who served decades in prison for the crime he didn't commit. The government uh, now admits that. Malcolm X gained national prominence as the voice of the nation of Islam, exhorting black people to claim their civil rights by any means necessary. He was shot to death while beginning a speech on February 21st, 1965. He was 39. A witness at the time described the scene at the Audubon Ballroom. I saw two guys standing up, and the next thing, my next impression, it all happened very rapidly, as you can understand, is of the gunshots. And uh, I saw Malcolm had his hand up. He had said, he said, stay cool, stay calm, or something like that. And uh, just then, the gunfire went off, and his, his hand was up. I remember this. I turned around quickly, and the next thing I saw was Malcolm falling back in a dead faint. And Black Liberation Movement, uh Pardon me, Black Lives Matter's Anthony Beckford says that uh, black people are often the victims of police misconduct. Law enforcement has railroaded black communities since the inception of time, from the slave patrol to now. So we cannot be surprised by that. We need to go out there and actually find the actual killer. Matter of fact, there's a the documentary that um, a brother from New Jersey did about Malcolm actually tells us who the actual murderers were. But the fact that one of the murderers was actually 
an informant for the FBI speaks a lot. The FBI will protect their informants while they railroad other black people within the community for what goes on and what they practice within our black communities. We have to be very vigilant from now on. We have to stop just allowing things to pass us by because next thing you know, it's either going to be us, it's going to be one of our children, one of our loved ones that ends up either being railroaded or being the next hashtag. We have to live our life as if we're fighting against all of that every single day. And that's Anthony Beckford of BLM Brooklyn. Aziz and Islam, then known as Norman 3X Butler and Thomas 15X Johnson, and a third man were convicted of murder in March 1966. They were sentenced to life in prison. The third man, Muhad Mujahid Abdul Halim, also known as Talmadge Hare and Thomas Hogan, admitted to shooting Malcolm X but said neither Aziz nor Islam were involved. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. And it was a day of firsts in Washington, D.C. President Joe Biden briefly transferred power to Vice President Kamala Harris today while he underwent a routine colonoscopy, setting up a history-making moment as Harris became the first woman to hold that authority during the short time she stepped in as acting president. Afterwards, Biden's primary care physician wrote in a six-page memo released by the White House that Biden remains a healthy, vigorous 78-year-old male who is fit to successfully execute the duties of the presidency. During the course of Biden's colonoscopy, a benign appearing polyp of about three millimeters was identified and removed and would be studied over the coming week. O'Connor said that's the doctor. Biden had never had colon cancer. And a fractious House handed President Joe Biden a marquee victory today by approving a roughly $2 trillion social and environment bill as Democrats cast aside disputes that for months had stalled the measure and hampered efforts, efforts to sell their priorities to voters. These are 220. The nays are 213. The Build Back Better bill is passed. Every Democrat but one backed it, overcoming unanimous Republican opposition. The measure now heads to the Senate, where changes are certain. Speaker Nancy Pelosi earlier today. We'll be working together with them uh, so that we have agreement when it comes back to us. I have absolutely no doubt. We, the biggest hurdle was to get the bill there. The biggest uh, uh, challenge was to meet the vision of President, President Biden. And as Speaker Pelosi, the legislation, among the most expensive in years, is remarkable for its reach. It rewrites tax, health care, environment, education, housing and other policies, shoring up low and middle income families and helping the elderly and combating climate change. It'll be paid for by a tax boost to the country's highest earners. And last month, the House voted 268 to 161 to repeal the 2002 Authorization for the Use of Military Force, or AUMF, which originally authorized then-President George W. Bush's invasion of Iraq. It was part of the United States' $753 billion defense budget, $10 billion more than last the last defense budget, and $25 billion greater than the president's defense budget request. But one aspect of the the bill that's been shunted aside is the damage to the environment caused by the use of burn pits to discard waste, garbage, and dangerous chemicals, including weapons of mass destruction like poison gas. Those burn pits were used throughout the Middle East where the uh, United States had its operations 
military operations for the past 20 years. A retired professor of environmental health is Patricia Hines. She says these burn pits are similar to the use of Agent Orange, the herbicide prey sprayed over Vietnam by the U.S. military that impacted the health of soldiers and Vietnamese people. Incinerate is misleading. It suggests an enclosed burning facility with pollution controls, but these were barbaric burn pits dug on military bases in the midst of housing, work, and dining facilities without any pollution controls. Tons of waste, it's estimated that it was 10 pounds daily per soldier was burned in them every day all day all night blackening the air and they coated everything people's beds where they were eating and given what was burned this is not just particulate matter as the va has called it i mean it would be ash laden with hundreds of toxins and carcinogens even more perilous some of the u.s bases were built on the remnants of iraqi military bases that had been bombed and flattened by U.S. airstrikes. A handful of these bases, and and from what I've uh, learned, uh, at least five, had contained stockpiles of old chemical warfare weapons. Those would have been Iraqis. We had assisted them in developing those in their war with Iran. Joseph Hickman, a former Marine and Army sergeant, who interviewed over a 1,000 soldiers, He speculated that President Joe Biden's son, who was stationed at one of those bases where they had put the burn pits over or dug into old chemical warfare weapons pits, he was stationed at one of those and that the rare brain cancer that he got and died from is thought to be not just because of him, but associated with exposure to particularly chemical weapon waste. The thing is, this is very much like the Agent Orange crisis from the Vietnam War. The same type of advocacy, same type of congressional action is needed to get the similar registry for victims and who were exposed to this and for health care for them. Are there any leaders in Congress who are pushing this? Yeah, there are some. Representative Raul Ruiz, he has introduced three bills to be included in the National Defense Authorization Act, which is in the Senate at this point. And his three bills have to do with mandatory training for all medical providers working under DOD on the potential health effects of burn pits. And that's probably so that they would recognize the potential health impacts. Another bill would require DOD to include in their budget request to Congress an estimate of funding exclusively dedicated for incinerators and waste disposal alternatives to burn pits. At this point, just nine out of what was an estimated 230 burn pits, just nine still functioning in um, different places in in the Middle East. That should be investigated also. There were 3.5 million troops exposed over 30 years, but only one in 12 who served have signed up for the registry. So there needs advocacy on the part of veterans to encourage other veterans to sign up for that registry. Any provisions for people who might have been exposed in Iraq, Afghanistan and other places? No, there isn't. There have been studies, particularly of Iraq and the change in health 
over time and, and since the wars there, special emphasis on the use of depleted uranium. It's a controversial subject. You have people who say it doesn't have any health impacts, and yet the statistics on children's health, particularly in Iraq, strongly argue that they had one of the best health systems in the Middle East and also health statistics, and that has all changed. The very high rates of children born with disabilities, stillborn, and cancers. And that's Patricia Hines. She's a retired professor of environmental health. And Dr. Anthony Fauci is recommending masks at Thanksgiving gatherings if the coronavirus uh, status of people there is unknown. The nation's top infectious disease expert says even if it's a very small group, to the extent possible, keep the mask on. Well, the situation is if and, and, and let's just take a scenario. You have a family setting. You're vaccinated. Your family members are vaccinated. Yep. And even if the children who are yet too young to get vaccinated, go have an enjoyable Thanksgiving in your home. You don't need to wear a mask. The situation is that when you are outside in indoor congregate settings where you do not know the vaccine status of people, then you should be wearing a mask. If you're in a situation where everybody's vaccinated, then yeah. you really don't need to wear a mask. If you're at home, that's the situation. And that's the reason why the CDC says when you're in congregate settings and you have no idea who's around you, there's no requirement for vaccination. That's when you need to wear a mask. But if you know people are vaccinated, you don't need to wear a mask. Dr. Anthony Fauci. And finally, members of the New York Nurses Association Union are sounding the alarm about what they say is a nursing shortage at hospitals in New York City and around the state. Macalia Savitt reports. At a rally this week, Noemi de Jesus Aponte, president of the New York Presbyterian Columbia Hospital Nurses Bargaining Unit, said burnout and retention issues are contributing to a staffing crisis there that began during the pandemic. She says patient care is being compromised due to heavy caseloads and that it's a problem across New York. There are patients that are ignored for hours on end because of crisis, walks through the door, a trauma, a heart attack. So what does that mean to that nurse that does one-to-one? She's going to ignore the other 15 or 16 patients that she has. In a statement, New York Presbyterian says it's navigating the pandemic challenges and adding nursing professionals to its care teams. This January, new laws take effect for every hospital in the state, establishing minimum staffing standards for intensive and critical care units. However, hospitals have until the following year to implement committee's suggested changes. Nurses are demanding that hospital systems take action sooner by hiring more nurses now. Union members contend there's been a hiring freeze at New York Presbyterian and that temporary traveling nurses have been brought in. NISNA President Nancy Hagens doesn't see that as a sufficient solution. You bring in the travelers for 90 days and they leave. You're using a Band-Aid to cover a bleed. When we have a bleed, we put a pressure on the bleed. What do we do? We take the patient to the OR. We fix the problem. In the next month, NISNA members say they plan to rally at other hospitals in New York City and the Hudson Valley to raise awareness about the issue. I'm Michaela Savitt for New York News Connection. Thanks, Michaela.
And that's some of the news for Friday, November 19th, 2021. The news is produced with Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.